Yeah, there's repeated exposure and that's experience. You know, that's why, you know, more mature athletes often will beat younger athletes because they've got, you know, they kind of know they've dealt with the ups and downs. They know themselves, they know their body. So yeah, the fact that I knew the Leadville course three times, you know, I didn't know the competitors there, but I knew exactly what I could do on that course. I knew each hill, I knew how it was going to feel. And so there is assurance in that, but it's not everything because I'll take, you know, to Iceland, the cross the winter crossing of Iceland that just happened. I've never been to the middle of Iceland in winter. I didn't know the course. I didn't even know the course every day, which was really frustrating for me is to not have the map files and not, like you said, try to create some familiarity and control about what the day would look like. We didn't even have that every day of a map file, but still I was able to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to save my anticipation, my nervous energy. I'm going to save it for my body because my body's going to need it today. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with Flow Research Collective Radio, and welcome to today's episode with Rebecca Rush. So Rebecca is an American ultra-endurance pro athlete, seven-time world champion, author, entrepreneur, Emmy Award winner, and motivational speaker whose career has spanned numerous adventure sports, including rock climbing, expedition racing, whitewater rafting, cross-country skiing, and mountain biking. And Rebecca was nominated to the International Mountain Biking Hall of Fame in 2019. She owns seven world championship titles in multiple disciplines and was a member of the U.S. National Whitewater Rafting Team, as well as several international adventure racing teams participating in the Eco Challenge, Primal Quest, and other very well-known challenges and races. So Rebecca is just an amazing, amazing example of peak performance, flow, grit, and everything that we teach and train here at the Flow Research Collective. You're going to love this episode. Her and Stephen are old friends. They go way back. So it was a blast getting to hear them riff and being able to contribute to the conversation about how to sustain peak performance through later years in life, how to keep motivation high, and how to own your mind in situations that are incredibly demanding physically. So I think you're going to love today's episode with Rebecca. Without further ado, let's dive in. Rebecca Rush, huge welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. So in short, Rebecca, I think you're just, you're total badass. You're the embodiment of what we emphasize and teach here at the Flow Research Collective in terms of peak performance. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have some time with you today to go deep on all the great things you've done. 
Thank you. I'm excited to go deep because I feel like you and the research there have unlocked some of my awareness into what I've been doing for years, but more of a conscious awareness of behind the research that you're doing. So I'm really equally excited to talk to you. I'm excited to talk to both of you. All right. Let me ask the first question because I told Doreen I, I, I would. And I don't know if this is more relevant to older athletes than it is to younger athletes. But one of the questions I've wondered a lot in my own career as an athlete, maybe I noticed this less in cognitive stuff, but I've noticed that fear and anxiety and stress often manifest as physical soreness and tiredness and exhaustion. And you do multi-day endurance and ventures where there's a lot of stress along the way. So how do you manage that? And how are you able to distinguish this is emotional from this is actual physical stress and negotiate that along the way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's a like we could talk the whole entire time probably about that. I figured, I figured, but I thought I'd yeah. leave with something light. Yeah, let's start with something really easy here. You touched on a couple things. Our bodies, you know, stress is physical stress, you know, going on a hundred mile run, doing whatever like that physically. And then the emotional stress of, oh, this is hard. What if I'm going to die? What if it starts storming? What if I put my foot in the water? And, but the body in my understanding, doesn't know the difference between those levels of stress. So yes, there's chosen stress of I'm going to go do this big, gnarly physical undertaking and the emotional stress of fear, or I like to call it anticipation because fear is often a dirty word for people. And it, it kind of manifests in the same way. And I, I sort of changed that terminology for myself on my third year of the Leadville 100. It's a hundred mile mountain bike race. It starts at 10,000 feet. It's really hard. I've won it four times. And my third year on the start line- Can we just pause to talk about, it's not just any, it's a a crazy mountain. That's an easy race for me. It's a short race, but yeah. For most people, it's like the achievement of a lifetime just to finish the goddamn thing. It's an easy race for you and you've won it four times. Okay, let's keep going with it. Let's keep going. And good on this pain threshold because yeah, um, you know, doing a a hundred mile mountain bike race that starts above 10,000 feet, there are extreme physical demands dealing with an altitude, racing your heart out, literally racing your heart out at that high of an altitude. So there's extreme physical demands. And the first two years I went, you know, super nervous on the start line, you know, the typical, just like, ah, I have to pee 20 times, you know, that sort of thing. And the third year, and my husband, who's been my crew for it every year, third year, I was standing on the start line and I wasn't nervous. I was excited. And there was anticipation, like, oh, is it going to storm today? And like, oh, there's that girl next to me. She looks really strong, but it wasn't the typical like freak out nervousness. And my husband was like, he said afterwards, and I won the race again. I defended my title. I won for the third time and then won another time and broke my record. But my husband afterwards, he said, I was a little worried about you because I didn't recognize you. Like you weren't freaking out. And, you know, as I've gotten older as an athlete, that's an example of me recognizing that I have a finite amount of energy in my body and I'm going to put goose in and nutrition to try to like get more energy during the race, but there's only so much. And so if you spend it on emotional, you cash those dollars in on emotional stress Um, then you don't have as much energy in your legs to, you know, sprint past somebody at the finish line. And it's really a recent iteration of me understanding that 
my mind has control of how I respond to things. And then I can respond that nervous energy at the start line, or I can have the anticipation of like, this is exciting. I don't know what's going to happen and reframe that conversation in that way. And that's what I love about the art of impossible. And what I'm finding is that book is actually, it's the art and science of the impossible because now I'm understanding the control that I have based on what neurochemicals are being released and what's actually happening in my body. And what's been cool for me is I've intuitively been figuring that out, but now reading your book, I'm like, yes, yes, this is what I've been doing. This is what's been happening. And it's motivating me even more to develop even more tools and tactics to control that internal dialogue, to control that stress that really isn't Mm -hmm. serving you in any way, that emotional stress. And that's not just for the Leadville 100 or riding across Iceland. It is for life. You know, somebody cuts you off in the car and you have road rage. Like, is that really helping you? Is that helping the situation? No. I mean, it's a release of something, but when you take to physical sport and you're going to spend that energy that way, it's not good, a good use of energy. And I put a lot, I know this is a long answer to one question, but really this year I've done three really big winter bike expeditions and I've taken some really different approaches, conscious approaches to those races. One was the Iditarod Trail in Alaska, six days self-supported in the snow, all your gears with you. And then following up two weeks later, a winter crossing of Iceland, this similar sort of scenario, self-supported bike packing. And I employed basically energy conservation, like emotional energy conservation. And those two events are I'm most proud of that I did ride Alaska this year at age 52 of any expedition I've ever done. And then following it right up with probably like my second best one was Iceland. And I absolutely put that to the test that I'm using my mind in a different way and my energy conservation and how I'm spending that stress, how I'm spending those stress dollars, so to speak. So Yeah, that's the answer to your question. And how do you manage it? How do you deal with it? It really is all in your mind Um, because a hundred mile mountain bike race at 10,000 feet hurts and it hurts the same way for everybody else. It's your response to it. And I have a little mantra that I've used for a long time and I didn't really understand it because someone said it to me at one point, my first eco challenge, he said, you know, you can run across the hot coals or you can walk across them you know, it's going to hurt either way. So that one motivates me to go fast in an event be like, well, let's just get to the party at the end. The party's not here at the aid station. The party's at the end. So let's just get there. But it's also, it's how do you look at it? How do you frame it in your mind? What I'm reminded of, Rebecca, when you described that by the third time you have that decrease is the phenomenon of repetition suppression, which is a reduction in neural activity when stimuli are repeated. So I'm curious, do you think repeated exposure. So doing the race multiple times was a big driver for the decrease in anxiety and stress on the front end, or are there other mental tools that you have developed outside of just repeated exposure that help? Yeah, there's repeated exposure and that's experience. You know, that's why, you know, more mature athletes often will be younger athletes because they've got, you know, they kind of know they've dealt with the ups and downs. They know themselves, they know their body. So yeah, the fact that I knew the Leadville course three times, you know, I didn't know the competitors there, but I knew exactly what I could do on that course. I knew each hill, I knew how it was going to feel. And so there is assurance in that, 
but it's not everything because I'll take, you know, to Iceland, the crossing, winter crossing of Iceland that just happened. I've never been to the middle of Iceland in winter. I didn't know the course. I didn't even know the course every day, which was really frustrating for me is to not have the map files and not, like you said, try to create some familiarity and control around what the day would look like. We didn't even have that every day of a map file, but still I was able to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to save my anticipation, my nervous energy. I'm going to save it for my body because my body's going to need it today. And so, so yeah, there is familiarity, but I also think there is familiarity with the course, but probably differently familiarity with yourself and how you can respond to things. And the fact that you do have control of if you, if you fall in a river, you know, how do you get out? It's like, don't cry over spilt milk. I mean, your grandma told you that, you know, a long time ago. And I think, you know, the art of impossible is kind of, some of the tactics in there are exactly what your grandma told you. Don't cry over spilt milk because it doesn't actually really help. I love that. I was thinking about, so I was at Squaw over the weekend and it was my first time back at Squaw in about two years. And, you know, it's the professional athlete capital of the world. So, you know, day one, I just was sort of, I had to take some time off to go overcome an injury. So I was like, just testing my body. Day two, I dictated my own terms for the morning and then hooked up with the Squaw Valley Charge Posse for a crazy afternoon. And it was totally fine. And I was awesome. I could like work my way into my body. Day three, when I was already tired, it was from go. And like, I was literally scared halfway into the first run. I was like, I'm moving faster than I want to be moving this early. And we're, we're skiing lines that are bigger than I want to ski this early. And it dawned on me, I was like, you know what? This is a very common situation that I experience over and over at Squaw when other people are dictating the terms of the experience and I can't get my body ready to perform at that level. And I'm already like losing energy to the stress rather than warming up. And that it was the same situation. I was like, God, I've, I've dealt with this situation for 40 years and I still don't know what the solution is. Other than to say, hey guys, I'll see you in two hours after my, my 53 year old body is actually awake. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what that reminds me of is like, you know, I'll go back to Leadville again is, you know, I'm an endurance athlete. So I'm on paper. I'm a slow starter. I think it was the third year that I won. I'm standing at the finish line. The guy who finished behind me, a couple of minutes behind me, he turns to me and he's like, why do you always start so slowly? And what I said to him is, well, why do you always finish so slowly? Cause he finished behind me, but it's an example of what I didn't like about that race is everyone would start not in my pace, not in my body. And they'd start so fast and it was so uncomfortable for me. And I think maybe that's the key to that third year. I was like, I'm going to start at my own pace. I'm going to pass everybody at the hill at mile 50. And then I'm going to be passing people, hundreds and hundreds of people all the way to the finish line in the second half of the event. And kind of to your point in this skiing is we have a different pace. And yeah, you got to, you, you have to run somebody, your own race. Yeah. If they push you out of that, it's like trying to hang on to somebody on a bike ride who's a little faster than you. It's not fun. And so. Well, from a flow perspective, it's you're right out of the challenge skills sweet spot. And you'll never, I don't think it's very hard to get back to because you've already burned too much energy dealing with the fear that from being outside of it. And I guess it's the same lesson again and again and again and again and again. Isn't it funny how we have to like learn the same lessons for our entire life? And, you know, when people ask me, when are you going to retire from sport? It's like never, because that's my teacher. Like I have to keep learning this stuff. I agree with that. 
So Rebecca, some of the other things you've done is summited Mount Kilimanjaro by bike. I know you're the first person to ride the entire length of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is which is really cool. And I'm curious if you could describe for folks what some of the highs or the best flow states are like in these expeditions, and then what some of the lows or the most challenging points are like, and how you navigate both. Yeah, that, again, you guys have these really big questions. All the expeditions that you mentioned, and this is where, you know, I don't consider myself a cyclist or even like just an athlete. I consider myself an explorer. And like, as a kid, I used to camp in the backyard and like be outside as much as I could. And I feel like even, even now, you know, my career has taken a lot of different turns with different outlets, but it's always been around exploration and movement in the outdoors. So those four rides that you mentioned, Kilimanjaro and Ho Chi Minh Trail, and um, I forget what else you mentioned, but they're all adventure expeditions. And there's highs and lows in all of them. They're very big projects. It's actually hard to articulate what it's like to ride for six days through Iceland. Really, only my teammates will understand that. But the highs of those are the unknown places that you can go and, you know, what is around the next corner. Some of the biggest challenges and the lows are that same thing that you don't know what's around the next corner. And so what is the gift and the challenge are intertwined and, you know, putting yourself into the unknown, you know, stepping off into the vastness is super scary, but it's really rewarding. And I mean, that's part of after Blood Road, after the Ho Chi Minh Trail, that ride was the most important, biggest ride of my life. And just for anyone who's listening, I rode 1,200 miles, put together a historically accurate Ho Chi Minh Trail route through Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia as an expedition for myself because no one had ever done it. But more personally, to go to some specific map coordinates in the middle of Laos where my dad's plane was shot down in 1972. So it was a very much a big physical journey, but also an emotional journey and connecting with my family. And that ride changed my life. I came home from it awakened in many ways. People say, oh, that must have been closure to, you know, see where your dad died and be there. And it was exactly the opposite. It was an awakening of a purpose of who this man was, of getting to know my family, finding a purpose for my riding. It opened all, all these doors in a pretty dark state of despair and feeling quite lost after that experience of how do you talk, you know, the biggest experience of your life is my competitive, you know, racing spirit gone. Like, what do I do now? Like, what do I do with all this information I've been given? And it, it took me a couple years of a lot of journaling, meditating, trying to breathe, trying to figure out who I was going to be when I grow up and what do I do with all this? And that's really where I started to, this started my journey that has kind of led me to you guys of understanding what I'm doing. And I developed during that period, a personal mission statement. I looked back at all the things I'd done and developed kind of some life navigational tools that like, when do things work for me? And wrote some of those down. It's like a little series of five statements. And one of them is risk equals reward. A big pillar of what I do, and that goes back to your question is, taking risk is rewarding for me. I like going into the unknown, not because I like the feeling of not knowing, but because I like the feeling of the discovery on the other end of that and, and growing as a person. And so 
as I develop my pillars and kind of my meaning and, and understanding what my brain and body been doing for, you know, five decades, Blood Road made me really sit down and think about that. It was a very liminal moment for me that's now five years later, I'm understanding what I was doing and what my mission is. And it ties a lot into the things that Stephen, you talk about our motivators is people want to feel a purpose. You know, they want to be giving back to something, but they also need to be a little bit scared and a little bit excited. And, you know, so many of those factors, when I look at these things that I wrote a few years ago, and that's why I'm like highlighting and taking notes in the art of impossible. And this isn't like because it's your book, but I feel like this is explaining all of the things that I have been trying to figure out in my head. You, you've put it down into words. And then my little mission statements and all that are hitting a whole bunch of your, you know, stack as you talk about of like, how do you get into this great flow state? How do you, you know, create these magical moments for yourself? And like some of the stuff I wrote down is actually being re exactly reinforced behind the science and the study that you've done. And that to me is so exciting because it means that I'm not done with these cool things. I'm actually opening another door to be able to go further and expand more. And I think I'm seeing that in my athletic career, like saying that at age 52, I did the best expedition of my life in Alaska. And it's because I have the tools up here now. I've got the body tools. I've been working on those for years, but now I've got a lot more going on in my brain and it's super exciting. So yeah, I think there's two. We're only on question number two. Yeah, no, we told we were. So I asked one and as one, you get to ask. We told we were going to let you ask questions. So you, it's, it's your turn now. It's my turn. I mean, honestly, I mostly, I want to say thank you because like I said, you're, you're helping me understand what we intuitively know. And I think as beings, we all have this intuition. We're all a little bit psychic, but we don't listen to it. And so we want proof. We want to know, like, does this work? If I do this, the five minute abs or something, is it going to work? So thank you, because I feel like your book is helping reinforce the stuff I was kind of trying to figure out. And it's nothing new. It's ancient, ancient work that people have been doing forever so i think you, I guess you, my question is when can we go on a bike ride so we can just like get really nerdy and talk about all this stuff and maybe i do have a question is what's interesting to me i really want to understand because i've always been an endurance athlete i'm better after four five ten hours six days why is it okay the first 30 minutes of a runner ride you feel terrible you hate it you you want to turn back home you're like i got work to do that that at least for me. And then all of a sudden, about 30 minutes, I click in and then I stop, that voice stops and I get on with Exercise the ride or workout, whatever. Transient hypofrontality. Okay. So say that again. So at the front end of flow, flow, one of the components of flow is transient hypofrontality. It's the activation of the prefrontal cortex, right? It gets quiet upstairs. That's transient, temporary. Hypo is the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down. And frontality is the prefrontal cortex. Exercise-induced tangent hyperfrontality is exactly what you're talking about. It takes 20 to 25 minutes for the body to warm up enough and to burn enough energy for the brain to go, oh, I'm going to deactivate. I'm going to shut down non-critical structures and divert this attention, divert my attention to that. So one, before that happens, you're too aware of 
pain, discomfort, all that, like you're focusing on the only thing to focus on is, oh crap, this doesn't feel good yet. This doesn't feel good yet. This doesn't, right? You basically have to tire yourself out. And the biggest problem with slow starters, and I'm the wire the exact same way, I cannot actually, like my first, it takes me three to four ski runs before that happens to me. And in my first run, I literally am almost like possessed by somebody else who can't ski. If you were to look at me in a first run versus my fourth run, it's like I go from like 90 years old to about 18. What you're talking about is when we get, when we, when that happens, we get nitric oxide. It pushes stress hormones out of our system and it, your lungs open up. So that's suddenly you can have, you get your first win basically after 20 minutes. So that's what that is. And some people can do it faster than others. I am very slow with it. It sounds like you're very slow with it as well. And I can't be rushed. It's not going to, like, there's no magical way for me to get there. You know, I, my body just wakes up slowly. And a lot of it is we're homeostatic organisms. The brain doesn't just want to know how much energy I'm going to burn now. It wants to know all the time how much energy I want to burn the exact same amount of energy. I don't want to burn more. I don't want to burn more. And we have to shift up to, hey, you, whether this is a cognitive task, I got to write a book right? Or lead a meeting or a physical task. I got to ride a bicycle. The brain doesn't want to give more energy. So until we get to that new energy level, the brain goes, oh, I can burn energy at this level and it's not going to kill me. I'm not going to die. Look, I got this, right? It feels awful. It feels like we not only feel all the energy we're burning, we feel stress at, oh, look at all the energy I now have to burn, right? And for slow starters, that is more acute. So you can't, that's again, the lesson we started with, you got to run your own race, right? And that was the thing I was asking you about because it's really, you know, I think it's difficult in every situation. And I think it's, everybody differs, right? You put me in a cognitive demanding situation and I am well-trained from years as a journalist and years in writing workshops where people are like up in your face instantly. Science is the same way. Everybody wants to argue right off the bat. They want to attack you right off the bat. And if you put me in that cognitive situation, I'm totally comfortable. I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. Cause I don't, it's not going to stress me out to have to burn more cognitive energy. Put me in a physical situation where I have less practice and I get stressed out more. So it's even more of that. Does that that was a long answer, but yeah, no, but so on that, on top of that, I'm opposite to you in that I'm perfectly comfortable in the physical space, getting warmed up, knowing it's going to take me a while to warm up or jumping in if I have to, where I'm not. And I would be really interested to hear your tactics in a cognitive space. I have to write a presentation. I have to write a book, which honestly, the hardest thing I've done in my life is write a book. And because I don't have the tools in the cognitive so place. Let me, let me get, let's go to book writing because I'll give you a simple example and you'll totally okay. get this. So when I, I write every day and trust me, when I tell you, much in the way you're like, look, climbing a hill hurts the same for everybody, right? Facing a blank page of, oh my God, I got to fill this page with words and they got to be good and they got to mean something is just as awful for me as it is for you. Hmm. The only difference is, I know that it takes a little while to get warmed up. So what I do is I start my writing session by editing what the, I wrote the day before. So I will always add 500 to 1,000 words to, what I, to something a day. And I start by editing what I wrote before. Why? Because pattern recognition, when we link ideas together in new ways, is a flow trigger. So when you're editing what you did the day before, you're usually making 
sort of minor tweaks. Oh, this word doesn't work right, but if I put this word in, it's better. That's pattern recognition. So mm-hmm. you're getting little bits of dopamine along the way. So by the time you get to the, oh, a blank page, fuck, what do I do? You've got enough dopamine in your system that focus has been driven a little bit. Your pattern recognition has been turned up a little bit more. And because it's dopamine, confidence goes up with it. So by the time you face the blank page, you're able to do that. It's the rough equivalent of I'm going to run my race for the first 50 miles and at mile 50, I'm going to pass them, right? Because that's how I work. I know how I work cognitively. So I'm never going to jump in immediately. I got to face if, and if, by the way, if I have to jump in and face a blank page, if that's what I have to do, I will read little snippets of other writers to try to get inspired. And what is inspiration? Oh, I saw a pattern. I saw a sentence I liked. I can, I, I get a little hit of dopamine and I can see how I might do that. And then I take that into my writing. I never go cold into a blank page because I can't win that war. Maybe other people can, but personally, I've been doing this for a long time and I know I can't win that war. I got to prime my brain to do the work. So first I have to prime my brain for, hey, you're going to be focused and you're going to burn energy and it's going to be a little more uncomfortable. So that's right. And while I'm resetting my homeostasis levels to, hey, more work is required. So I'm going to, right, I'm editing in a way that just gives me little rushes of pleasure. Now, where this total, where the wheels come off, system Stephen, is if I start reading if I'm really tired, for example, and don't notice it, and I start reading what I wrote the day before, and it looks terrible, and suddenly my brain is like, oh, look at this, you wrote dog shit, and look at all the energy it's gonna take to fix the dog shit. Then I've got a little bit of a problem, and when that happens, I have learned, like, I have to negotiate. I'm like, okay, agree, but why don't we take the next two hours and fix the next paragraph, which means you have a half an hour to fix the first sentence. So take your time, Go one word at a time. And so I will shrink the problem down then, right? Like if I'm tired or weak or frail or emotional or whatever, I'll shrink it so that I can match. I can just do the thing I need to do, which is get a little bit of dopamine, get a little bit of the neurochemistry that's going to make me forget all the other stuff, right? So I will shrink it until it's right in the challenge skills sweet spot that I am emotionally prepared to deal with. It's a little bit of a stretch, but not too much. So I'm really good at doing that cognitively because I'm really good at the signs also. I can tell one sentence in. I, if I read a first sentence, I'm immediately like, oh, this is absolute freaking crap. Chances are, because I've been doing this for a while, it's not absolute freaking crap. It's that I'm in a really bad mood and I'm really tired and I'm really stressed out and it needs a little bit more fine tuning than I want to give it. So I should make the problem smaller so it's less threatening, right? This is like saying... If I get really scared skiing, I don't know where I am or whatever, I'm always like, okay, do it 100 meters at a time. You, like, you can see the next 100 yards, you know what's in front of you, get to there, and then you're going to stop and you're going to route find and figure out where you're going. Like, I'll do it that way so I can stay you know, in my sweet spot. I have problems when there are other people involved and I, suddenly I'm self-conscious and I have to try to meet their expectations and I want to people please and I want to do all the human shit, right? that I'm not used to it. If I'm solo, I I can usually maintain. That's exactly what I do in sport. Like priming the pump, like in your warm up, if you do like a few 15 second, 30 second, super hard things, they tell your body like, oh, oh, okay. But they're not long enough to be really that hard. 
So, so primary pump happens, the compartmentalization. I always do that, you know, and if I get tired and hungry, I don't perform well. Like all of those things are exactly the same as what you're saying. I don't know why I haven't applied them yet to my work and like trying to write something. So, so this- I think, and I, and I, and I don't know. So it's interesting going the direction you're going, I find. So it's easier to train athletes to perform well cognitively than it is, it's more difficult going the other direction. But one of the advantages that I think sport gives you, especially as an older athlete, and you pointed it out, is you can't become an older athlete at any level of seriousness without developing massive amounts of self-awareness. Because mm-hmm. you have to know everything. Because you can't have, as an older athlete, I've noticed, you're not allowed to have a weak spot in your game. Simple example, my off-scenic training program for this, I've got all these ski goals for this year. I'm writing a book about it. I've got all this stuff I'm doing. I missed my hip flexors and I've missed stretching my quads. I, I have like four stretches for every other body part, two for my quads and my hip flexors. I like, I was training the big muscles, but I, the two, the box jumps and side leg raises, the two things you would be doing. I just admit it from my training program, mostly out of laziness because I don't like either of them. And sure enough, here we are like 70 days into my ski season and my hip flexor is what, like the one weak spot. You don't get to have a weak spot as you become an older athlete. I think the same thing through, Rian's done a lot of work on like corporate fitness and what does it mean to kind of be a corporate athlete. And I think the same thing may be true as you become kind of older that way is you don't get to have weak spots in your game. Um, you have to really be aware of that. And for athletes, that self-awareness is sort of built in as you age. I don't think it's there on the other side, but it's easier to, you know, the same rules always apply. Um, it's easier to notice the stuff in sport because it's raw, right? Oh my God, this hurts. Oh my God, I'm terrified and I can't perform, right? Like that shit is really clear, yeah. but like it's really clear in business environments for people like when they give speeches or you've never led a meeting before and you go in and suddenly, right, like you get that big rush and whatever, then it's really clear. But on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, it's harder. It's subtler, I think, in cognitive environments. Mm. And if you're not used to paying attention to it, if you don't have the sport training that fo- teaches you to focus on those interior signals, I think it'd be harder to develop. Yeah, sport's such a good analogy for it. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, more implicit, less explicit in a cognitive environment. So. Rebecca, question there that I had just related slightly to what, what Stephen was mentioning. I love the way you said sport is your teacher and that it sounds like is part of what keeps you going. You also mentioned that, you know, you've been you've been going hard at it for nearly five decades now. And it sounds like you're really just getting started, which is exciting too. So what is it that keeps you going? What are the elements of your intrinsic motivational stack that, you know, keep you so well fueled and have you committed to just leaning in, it sounds like at least harder than ever in your fifties. And I'm sure did many decades after that. Yeah. I, and, and like you said, sport is my teacher. It's also my medicine. You know, I, I feel like it's where I heal. It's where, you know, physically, emotionally, what I heard a, um, a term from some, I can't remember who said it, but I heard it the other day and it was, he was talking about nature deficit disorder of like, if people don't get outside, they don't feel good. So I do, you know, a lot of that, that movement and being outdoors is a, is a medicine for me. You know, whenever I feel bummed, I take my dogs on a walk and Steven, you can tell me exactly what's happening with the chemicals in my body when I do that, or I pet my dog, you know, and all those things are relaxing to the nervous system. So 
So yeah, it's my medicine. By the way, five minutes of petting a dog will give you oxytocin. Both for for you and the dog. So like, yeah, I do. I, by the way, I do the same, like literally I had a really bad day, really bad day. And I have no, no, if I have energy, I'll go walk the dog, take the dogs for a walk. If I don't have energy, first thing I will do is go sit and pet my dogs and force myself to pet them for five minutes to give me a little bit of that, just oxytocin to at least, you know, try to reset my mood a little bit. It does. And I love knowing I'm just going to tell my dog Diesel, hey, I need some oxytocin. Come on over here. <laughs> drug dispensers disguised as animals. Yeah, exactly. Furry drug dispensers. It's all there. <laughs> it is cool to know that you can control the drugs that you need to improve your mood. Like it kind of blows, it blows my mind. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, one of the things I always say, people get really offended by this, but on a certain level, we are really simple machines and there aren't that many levers. So it's funny because people think, oh, we teach them neuroscience and like, this is going to go on. And yeah, you could go as deep down this rabbit hole as you want, but the amount of like science you sort of need to understand everything going on in your system and regulate your system, it's not that. You can learn it fairly quickly, right? We do an eight week course and I think it's exhaustive, right? So like in that sense or or art impossible, it's mostly all in there. It's a limit. It's a bunch of knowledge, but it's a limited set. And you're like, once you're like, oh, wow, these are the five or six feel good drugs I want. These are the ways to get them. Here's, you know, here's what I need now. And, you know, you can start to figure it out pretty quickly. I love that. The breakdown of these, you know, chemicals. And if I walk my dog, this happens. If I go on a run, this happens. We really are our own medicine. And I I think a lot of people, what I'm excited about is I think with, you know, being on lockdown for, for a year and people being, you know, alone and in their own space, I think, I know a lot of people, you can see it in the sales of outdoor equipment. Um, People are finding the outdoors and they're finding movement because they, they were sitting still and they needed it. So I'm pretty excited about that progression as a silver lining from from COVID. And you think that's a good thing? I think it's a bad thing. Go home, people. The skiing's terrible. Well, it, to some no extent, snow. I mean, if people are moving, walking on bike, it is a good thing. But it's also it does require education because yeah, I, yeah. I just think it requires uh, share, learning how to protect the environment and share the environment. Absolutely, and and there that is the downside is people are coming outside who've never had experience and they don't love and appreciate it. They love it, but they don't appreciate it yet or understand it's a, a finite resource. So yeah, for all of you finding the outdoors, join a trail crew or join your local Imba chapter or, you know, Surf Riders Foundation or something like that. Okay. So Rhea, next question, my kind of tools for motivation to keep doing things. I think, uh, you know, you talk about it in the book, but um, the fact that I've been an athlete for so long in so many different sports is that I have been open to change and do new things and have a beginner's mind. I mean, my worst sport was mountain biking and I started that at age 38 you know, and it's been the most successful part of my career. So I, I think a, a lot of it, people are like, why do you change sports so many times? It's actually listening to a passion and, you know, a curiosity, which has always been important to me. Like, could I do Leadville? Could I do 24 hour mountain bike racing? Could I climb up Kilimanjaro? It starts first with a curiosity, a need to explore. And then it starts with like, Ooh, is there like, something risky about it. And these are those, you know, principles that I talked about, you know, if my hands kind of start to sweat a little bit when I think about something and this happened when I, somebody's like, you should do Iditarod. I was like, Oh no, 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 no. But then my hands are sweating and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So there is an element of risk that, that also builds excitement for me. 
And then since Blood Road, all of my rides and things have sort of a give back, you know, through my foundation or have a purposeful meaning to them. Kilimanjaro was one of the first rides that, yeah, I rode up Kilimanjaro on my bike, but we also raised the equivalent in elevation in dollars to gift bikes to kids in Africa through World Bicycle Relief. And I remember the summit of Kilimanjaro with my bike, but I also just remember being excited to get down and go to the village and ride bikes with these school kids who were going to get the bikes from us. And so the two highlights of that trip were the summit and then, you know, hanging out with these, these high school age kids who were, who were getting bikes. How many of them did you have to teach to ride bikes? They know how to ride bikes already. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there was bike riding skills. Cause I, I want to go to the Rebecca Rash, learn how to ride a bike for the first time ever clinic. Oh, absolutely. I will. I will take you on that clinic. That would be really fun. And that give, I, you know, give equals get is the equation that I have, you know, the risk equals reward, passion equals payoff. Give equals get is like, I get so excited. Like I would be so excited to teach you to mountain bike. Like I would get a lot out of that. Um, and it'd be really fun for me. And the same with Kilimanjaro or the rise I do or putting on events here in Idaho is that I'm stoked to see people raise their hands, cross the finish line and do something that they've never done before based on an invitation from me. So that is, is super motivating for me is to have all my expeditions be that way. You know, there's a, there's a two-part equation. I have to like challenge and inspire myself and keep learning, but then I also have to pass that back. And if one side, if I'm giving too much and not going and doing my own exploring, that, you know, balance is off and, and I'm not you know, in a flow state or a happy person, or if I'm too much in my own world, being kind of selfish and just doing my own sport and not giving some of it out there, then, then that's not as rewarding for me either. And that's a key to the longevity is that my business has been multifaceted with different sports, trying different things all the time. And that the aspect isn't just selfish. It isn't just about me or an Emmy award or a podium, or, you know, there's always a a passing on of the knowledge. That's a super good example of uh, passion plus purpose. It's interesting how you've added the purpose piece to, you know, get an increase in intrinsic motivation by having the impact side of things and the foundation and everything. I love that. Um, that And the last one that I added, I have four. I added the last one that I added kind of recently. And I think you guys will resonate with it too, is that less equals more. And that if I try to do everything that's on my plate or all these opportunities, um, I do them all pretty half-ass instead of doing less and really putting my focus, putting my attention into something that matters for me. So yeah, that's been a a recent addition to the equations. I think it's just, it's more fun to be excellent, right? I mean, period, right? Like, I don't care if we're talking about business, relationships, like it's like excellence is one of the best joys we have. Mastery is the most Mm. profound of the intrinsic motivators. We like it the most. It's the most sustaining long-term, though I think more work needs to be done. Mastery seems to correlate to moment by moment happiness more than other things and long-term life satisfaction over well-being. So we know this, like we all know this, like when you look back on your life, you don't think, oh God, the highlights were all these 17 things I did half-assed. They're like the three or four things you killed it at. That's what we like. Everybody's had that experience and yet we act as if our own history wasn't real, which is all. And the thing is, it means you're not going to do something else. If you're really going to dedicate to learn the ukulele, then you're not going to spend your time doing 
something else. And I think, you know, that's where I struggle. And a lot of people, there's all these cool things. There's all these shiny things we want to do and we want to do them all. Oh, I should journal more. Oh, I should learn the ukulele. Oh, I should ride my bike more. But you have to leave one of them or a lot of them in order to achieve mastery. Something has to go. I think that's the hard part in getting started on your pathway to mastery is what do you sacrifice first? What's interesting about that particular one now, this may change as you get much older, perhaps, but in my experience, at least, because yes, there's lots of sacrifices, right? You're going to, I'm going to focus on this. I'm not going to do these other things. Everything always comes back. Like anything that I was really curious about that I sort of was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to, it comes roaring back at some later date. And I never, it's like that the opportunity always seems to come back to me. So every now and again, Laird Hamilton, when I was 30 years old, wanted to write a book with me. And I knew I didn't want to write a book with Laird because I wanted to write my own books and I would do my own thing. But if I knew, and it was probably a two-year project, but I knew if I did it, I would come out the other end a much better surfer than ever, <laughs> right? On my own, I was ever going to get there. But you spend two years working with Laird, you're going to come out the other end a badass surfer, which was a lifelong dream. And I would have never gotten there, right, that, to that level. And yes, I had, that one I don't think is going to come back. Like some of those aren't, though I could call Laird and be like, dude, for the next two years, I'm your, I'm your slave boy. And he would say yes, perhaps, but I still don't think I'm going to do it. But now you're a badass writer. To your point, you gave up becoming a badass surfer to develop mastery in writing. I did. And by the way, I mean, I, I did. And honest to God, like two years later, I was writing West of Jesus, which was a book about surfing, where I literally got to become a better surfer along the way. So mm. I did actually find a way to put it together. I just didn't get, you know, two years of Laird Hamilton tutorial. <laughs> and there's no guarantee I could have lived through that. There also, I should also point out, there's probably wouldn't have lived through it. But anyways, is a regret, sort of, on one of those. But as a general, everything else is sort of looped back around, I've found. I don't know if that, I don't know if that's been your experience. It has. And again, we probably, you know, our grandma's probably said to everything in due time, you know, it'll all happen when it's supposed to happen. And sometimes you hear that and you're like, everything happens for a reason or whatever. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want it to happen now. But no, I I do believe things come around. You know, I, I came home from Blood Road and was you know, that ride. And it was like, I got to write a book and I got to do this and I got to do that. And I was going on film tour. I haven't written that book, you know, and part of me is like, ah, I missed an opportunity. That sucks. Like it would have been cool to have a book and a movie, you know, like package deal. But now I actually feel like because I developed sort of my core principles, I've really processed what that ride has meant. I could write a deeper book. The story is actually deeper than it was, you know, the moment or the year that I finished it. And one of the other things I wanted to ask Rebecca, somewhat on the on the mastery note, it was about specialization and range. Because, you know, when I look at your career highlights, the, the range is immense in terms of the different things that you've done, the different sports and endeavors. So how do you think about specialization on one specific thing versus range? What does your training look like with such a range of, of feats as challenges? And to Stephen's point about, you know, surfing and then writing, ironically improving his surfing, have you found that they, the different pursuits kind of feed each other and have a sort of a synergistic effect? Yeah. I mean, that's a super good question. And people have kind of asked me, why have you done so many different things? Not as eloquently as you just asked it, but I think 
you know, and it's why I say I'm an explorer, even more than a cyclist, because the knowledge that I have built from navigation to, you know, it, it can cross a lot of barriers. That said, there have been cool moments in my career where I really did specialize. You know, I was really heavy into rock climbing for a while and and only doing that and managing rock climbing gyms and teaching climbing. And then I went through a period like in the Leadville years where I was hyper-focused on really just winning that one race. And my cycling training was much more focused on hundred mile events. I think what's cool is that with all these sports, I sort of have this well, you know, I've been sort of, it's like going to college, you know, you take classes in your specialty, but they also make you take some other extracurricular stuff. And then you're learning out of the classroom things. So I I feel like where I am right now is this sort of beautiful culmination of all the experience I've had is allowing me to do bike expeditions. And because I had that really focused cycling training period, you know, cycling is really natural to me now. So I can be navigating and riding at the same time. And I have the skill base. So I, I do feel like they've all fed into each other. And for me, the reason I don't stay hyper-focused on one thing, and this is just part of my personality is that I get bored or I have a question of like, what would it be like to, there's a curiosity that I already mentioned, like, could I swim the Grand Canyon? Could I do that. And I think because I have a broad base, I get asked to do a lot of interesting things. And I try to say yes. And I really, Iceland was kind of where I, you know, the last trip I just did, I just got home a couple of weeks ago where I was sitting there and I got invited on that trip because of my skill set in winter bike expeditions. And I was like, wow, you know, I got invited by Chris Burkhardt. He's really well-known photographer and Angus Morton, who's a filmmaker. And I'm like, why are you guys asking me? And they're like, because of your experience. And so that was kind of a realization to me that like, whoa, I've kind of done a lot of stuff and I'm viewed in this way. Um, Because I don't think we often don't turn the mirror on ourselves. And, you know, I, the best athletes I know are not bragging about themselves, but that was bigger than an Emmy award to be like, you're invited on this really cool expedition. And you were the one person we could think of that had the skill set to do this. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. But the reason I don't stay with hyper-specialization, and I'll talk a little bit about my training, is that there's a lot of stuff I want to do. And it showed itself in high school. I ran track and field, and I ran ran cross-country. And I hated track and field because it was too predictable. I knew exactly how many minute or how long it should take to get around. You're always making left-hand turns. You know, the terrain doesn't change. It's not motivating. I need the terrain zipping by and changing and being different to motivate me. And so part of the, all these transitions that seem really chaotic, they're all because I was curious about something different and I, I need variety in my life. And my training right now, you know, I do have a coach and for anyone who doesn't have a coach, I can't speak highly enough about it for accountability and for someone who's smarter than you in a very specialized field. I love being told what to do. And then if I didn't do it, he asked me why I didn't do it. And if I don't have a good reason, um, so often it's motivating for me uh, to do the training, to have a coach or a program that I'm going to follow and something scary on the horizon that keeps me accountable. And mostly my training, you know, right now I'm in a dog walking phase because I've had three to four months of really big expeditions. And so coach is like, you need to walk your dog for an hour a day. That's where we are right now. We're pretty simple human beings and the body responds to short, hard efforts and then long, slow efforts. And everything else in between is kind of sort of garbage, unless you're going really, really hard for a short period of time and slow and long. And 
most anybody training for anything can take that basic platform and, and build a training schedule around it. Hyper simplified. This season, I decided I was going to try to learn to park ski at 53, which is not like anybody who over 20 trying to learn to park ski is, you know, right? Like they don't, old people don't do this at 53. Um, and well, there's a lot, of, I mean, there's a lot, you know, fast twitch muscle response, atrophy, like there's a lot of reasons people have, and I think it's all bunk. So I've been trying to do it, but when the, you're talking about the very thing that I do think is the hardest one to balance, which is the amount I need to ski for a season to progress versus the amount I need to ski for a season to actually be, have the energy to be able to progress are very vastly different things. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I've probably been going way too hard despite, right? Like, which I find is the weirdest, the hardest thing to balance. Um, it's also the same thing with cognitive skills, right? You want to be totally focused on what you're doing, but there's a point at which where it becomes obsession and burnout and it's no longer passionate purpose. It's obsession and burnout. And right. Like those lines back and forth are really fungible to use a big fancy word. I think it's hard for people to rest and realize that more work doesn't produce results if you're just too tired. And, you know, people ask me, how do you train for a six day race? Are you just like out all the time, like sleeping on your bike? And it's like, no, I think my longest ride this winter was four hours, you know, but I have experience. I've done multi-day expeditions and I know I can do an hour of like five minute on five minute off intervals and get a lot done in one hour, more done in one hour than I could get going on a 10 hour bike ride. And my coach talks about the same thing. He's like, you're going to have so much physical fatigue from a really long workout like that, that you come back, can't come back to Tuesday morning's interval workout fresh enough to actually see a result. And so, yeah, less is more when you're training is kind of why I say you need a coach because we always think, Oh, I got to do more. I got to do more. I got to do more. And it just doesn't produce results. So yeah, short and hard. And so for your skiing, I'd say, you know, you have so many years of experience that I think what's really, you're going to see is really cool is from being in the weight room and doing some of that other explosive and different things. I bet you, that's where you're going to see your jump. Yeah, I, time I, yeah no, I, I mean, the one thing that I'm clear on is I'm going to see the biggest jump between one, year one and year two. Because year one was about mostly learning. I learned a handful of things that work really well. And I learned a bunch of stuff. But mostly I learned, oh, this is the weak spot in your game. This is the weak spot in your game. Oh, you, this is, you can't do it this way. That got really, really visible to me. So I think you're totally right. I think that's cool that you're doing that. It's like your own experiment of yourself. I love it. Well, I figured it was after writing The Art of Impossible. If I'm setting intellectual cognitive challenges for myself, those don't like I've done that my entire life. Every book I write is I want it to be harder from a technical, not the material, but the actual what I'm doing with words and what I, like those challenges I'm really used to setting. But trying to really set a hard physical challenge for myself was something I haven't done in a long time. So I wanted to, you know, let's let's mix it up that way. That's really I, I feel like what we're I've been on these parallel paths, but you're going to physical. And I'm needing to do the cognitive. <laughs> you guys are swapping. I've got a new babysitter. Her name is Rebecca. <laughs> we can be teammates. Yeah, we can be teammates on this journey together. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your wisdom today. Anything you would like to mention for our audience before, before we close out here? And where can they learn more about you and support the foundation and everything as well? 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, you can find pretty much everything I'm doing at RebeccaRush.com or social media is Rebecca Rush and it's R-U-S-C-H. And one thing coming up that's pretty exciting. I mean, I, part of my purpose, like I said, is to inspire other people. I do have an event coming up the end of the month called the Giddy Up Challenge. And it's an elevation challenge that you can do anywhere, run or bike, indoor, outdoor, and you basically pick a hill and you do it a bunch of times and you can either do an Everest, half Everest, quarter. And it's part of my Be Good Foundation fundraising. And the goal of Be Good Foundation is to use the bike as a catalyst for healing, empowerment, and evolution. And so our focus with this year's event challenge, Giddy Up Challenge, is we're, we're putting all that money towards groups that are working in protecting wild spaces, our public lands, our outdoor trail systems, because like I said, there is more impact, more people finding, finding those places. So if you want to do a ride challenge or a run challenge with me on Memorial Day weekend, you do it from home, you can go on my website or giddyupchallenge.com and, and we'll protect you know public lands and open spaces. So that's the next big thing coming up for me. After can I ski in Everest instead? Yes, I, can, actually, I, I, I actually do that all the time. We'll go out and we'll be like, okay, today we're going to ski in Everest. Totally ski in Everest. Yeah, that would be great. You can sign up and do it. I mean, I guess technically that's on foot, but yeah, you could totally do that. And yeah, the goal is to get a bunch of people out there pushing themselves and, you know, riding with a purpose and, and providing motivation. So, and if anyone wants to sign up, I teach you how to pick your route, how to load it into your Garmin device, you know, how to record it, what to eat. So there's some support along the way. You're not just like sent out there to climb up a big hill, but that's the next big thing coming up that would be really fun, Stephen, for you to ski or for anyone else to join me. Yeah. And, and I I also hope we get to ride bikes together in person. We we will ride bikes together. You know, I'm a DH guy. I don't like to go up. Well, Um, then you can teach me some on the down. I'll teach you some on the up. And I think we've talked about this. I'm going to teach Rebecca anything on a bike. For sure. I'll like, ask you open-ended questions the whole time so that you have to talk. So that Dude, you're I told you. I'm just going <laughs> to swear at you the entire time. Like, I, me going uphill on a bike is literally, like, if you just want to hear me cuss, that's perfect. So you can go uphill on skis. You could Everest on skis, but you don't. You, oh, no. I'll Everest going down on skis. Oh, I'll gotcha. Ski. Take the chairlift. Yeah, we'll I take the it. chairlift up and I'll ski in Everest. I, look, I, I'm a gravity athlete. I don't really, I'm not interested in going up. My interest is in what I need. Speed is what turns my brain off. I have to be going downhill fast for my brain to actually stop thinking, which is what we're all looking for um, on a certain level. So like that, it doesn't go away. I don't stop thinking when I go uphill. Sometimes that's great. And I like that when I'm out hiking my dogs, it's perfect. I solve all kinds of problems and that's great, but I don't like it as an athlete. I'd much rather do it going down. If you went 24 hours or 12 hours or six days, your, your brain, you do stop thinking you reach. Oh yeah, I do. I definitely do. And I've done, I've done expeditions and yes, absolutely. But usually I'm miserable at that point. Like when my brain stops working because I'm that tired, like you, there are a lot of people I know who love it. I do not actually love it. Like it's not, I don't go away into a place of sanguineness. I go away into, oh, Steven's gone, but the guy who's replaced him is awful and you don't want to be around him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, on that note, we got to get Steven at the door to teach a bunch of Samsung executives how to to get into flow. So we'll wrap it up here. And Rebecca, hopefully this is the first of many. Thanks so much again. Thanks, Rebecca, you're my favorite. Thank you so much.
If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.